0: Brothers and sisters, let's return in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis in the second chapter. After a detour for the occasion of Easter, we'll return. This is sermon number 27 for those who are counting from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, we need to read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to need to turn to the New Testament to a passage that exegetes this passage. We'll need to have them both uh, under our eye this morning. Uh, So if you'd like, you can already be putting a marker at Ephesians 5. The page numbers from your pew Bibles are in the bulletin. Beginning at verse 18 of Genesis, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. The man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. And now look over at the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and I'll begin reading there from verse 22, to the end of that chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, end of quote. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, give us not only the blessing of focus and attention and receptive hearts to your word. Give us the blessing of joy and wonder. What you've done. Hiding, as it were, glorious truths in ancient words. Let me take in hand again today. Give us that love, joy, and wonder, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, speaking of the mystery of romance and of marriage, the wise men of Proverbs, in a portion I like to quote, says, three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maid. So as we've been considering in God's creation of the first man, also his creation of the first maid, we've seen the mystery of that very first marriage and every marriage that follows from it. This relationship that God has invented that can become one of such intimacy that the two become one. That's what we could call the mystery of marriage. Today, however, I want to consider with you the mystery behind marriage. That's the mystery that the Apostle Paul is identifying in Ephesians 5, the passage I just read, and that is very well known in this congregation. But it's also a mystery, according to the Apostle Paul, that's there in Genesis 2, in a way that may not be quite as familiar to this congregation. We're going to be following Paul's lead this morning. He is seeing something in Genesis 2 that we might not otherwise have seen. Indeed, it's something that I would say isn't possible to be seen until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, just like the Apostle John did this for us when we were studying Genesis 1. Remember, we recognize that John begins his whole gospel with a little exegesis of the word ...that was spoken in Genesis 1. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. We saw that what he was doing there was going back to Genesis 1... ...and recognizing that this word that continues to speak all things into existence... ...in Genesis 1 is actually the person of Jesus Christ. We watched and followed John's lead in Genesis 1 in that respect. We're going to do the same thing now with the Apostle Paul... ...except we're in Genesis chapter 2... And we'll be seeing in Genesis 2, not the person of Christ or even the doctrine of the Trinity, now so much as a picture of redemption, unless I'm very mistaken, you'll find our meditations of great interest and edification this morning. We'll divide our time into two parts. I'll call the first part of our time devoted to looking at an ulterior motive in the making of marriage, and then we'll spend the rest of our time, the second part of our time, looking at gospel features of the first marriage. Now, we'll start at Ephesians 5, and I will just acknowledge to you that Paul is saying a great deal in the passage we've read that we don't have time to look into with any length And we've done that in the past. Suffice to say, if Ephesians 5 is not fresh in your minds, Paul's been giving wives a charge to be submissive to their husbands, and he grounds that exhortation to wives in the fact that the church owes submission to Christ. Conversely, he's given husbands a charge to be sacrificially loving towards their wives, and he's grounded that call to love in the fact that Christ has sacrificially loved us, now you and I are so familiar with that, we accept that parallel that Paul is making. Husbands and Christ, wives and the church. But imagine just for a moment that you didn't accept that parallel. Imagine the objection that you might raise. Wait a minute, Paul. You might say, why aren't you telling husbands to submit to their own wives as the church submits to Christ? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you telling wives to lay down their lives for their husbands as Christ did for the church? Well, this is what makes Paul's quote of Genesis 2.23 in Ephesians 5.31 so very significant, my friends. He's grounding his exhortations to wives and husbands in his exegesis of Genesis 2. And he's seeing in Genesis 2. That's the text we're uh, primarily interested in. Already the mystery of Christ in the church. So in Ephesians 5.31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You know that there he's quoting from Genesis 2.23. Then he says this, this mystery is profound. I am saying, what mystery? This mystery that he's just cited from Genesis chapter 2, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is he doing? Brothers and sisters, he's saying that behind the mystery of marriage, stands an even greater mystery. That is to say, in Genesis 2, as God creates Eve and gives Eve to Adam, there is in that a picture of something. You could even say there is a kind of prophecy of something in that. God is foretelling in that something he's one day going to do. Namely, he's going to create a bride... his son and he's going to give her to him in marriage so as great a mystery as the one flesh relationship is between a man and a woman it's actually pointing as an institution it's pointing to something even more mysterious the union between christ and his elect people you could say it this way behind the mystery of marriage is the mystery of redemption Behind the marriages of the sons of men stands the marriage of the Son of God. Their marriages are divinely invented illustrations of his marriage. So, of course, that's why it's right for Paul to say what he says to husbands and say what he says to wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I have been trying to capture... Things that are familiar to most of you, if you've been on the ministry of this pulpit for some time, in a little bit more of a provocative way in my first point, talking about an ul- pardon me, an ulterior motive in the making of marriage. Paul is seeing God as having an ulterior motive when he makes Eve and brings her to Adam now. I- I know, we use that expression ulterior motive typically in a negative way. So kids, uh, for example, if you come to your father, uh, girls, if you come to your dad when he's studying and you have a tray with tea and cookies and you, you just surprise him with it and you say, Daddy, look what I brought you. If your dad looks at you and says, What do you want? You'd be so hurt, wouldn't you? He's so devastated. You would think, he sees an ulterior motive in what I'm doing. I don't usually do this, so he thinks that I'm really going to ask a special favor of him after I butter him up with a tea and cookies. Well, that's true. Ulterior motives often are negative. They're things we are hiding out of our duplicitous hearts because we want to manipulate each other. But folks, that's not what the word ulterior has to mean. Here's the dictionary definition lying beneath or beyond what is evident or revealed. And so I am saying, in that strict sense of the word ulterior, that there is an ulterior motive in the Creator as He makes Eve in the way He makes her and brings her to Adam in the way that He brings her to Adam Now, what lies on the surface of Genesis 2, what all the interpreters of Genesis 2 would have been able to see for thousands of years now, is very straightforward. Adam's alone. He needs help. Eve is God's provision. Marriage is his invention for Adam's need. And that's a correct understanding of Genesis chapter 2. But Paul's helping us see there's something lying underneath all this. In the Creator's mind, something that will be revealed, something that will be evident one day. Behind the human marriage, think of it this way Behind the human marriage on day six is a divine marriage of the ages behind the mystical union of a man and a woman is the even more mystical union of God and man. Now, folks, we have the Apostle's exegesis to go on here. So there's no room for doubt, but I want you to know that it's not as if the Apostle Paul was the first to glimpse this. Paul's not pulling an exegetical rabbit out of a hat, and Paul's not even uh, revealing something in the Spirit for the first time, though Paul is able to do that as an apostle. He's simply developing even further something that the prophets long ago were able to speak of. They spoke of God having a relationship with his people as a marriage. Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah 2, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. If you wish to look at the prophecy of Hosea, Again, sometime you'll see the whole of that developing this reality of the relationship between God and His people as a marriage. And in Hosea's day, it's not a very good marriage because of God's people's unfaithfulness. So, brothers and sisters, it's God's plan one day to have an intimate relationship with all of His elect. This is in His mind as He sets out to create all the earth, and it lies behind his invention of this thing we've been studying called marriage. And marriage is then God's own illustration for what he's intended all along for us. Here's the word that theologians use for when God does this. It's the word typology. So in this case, the making of Eve... And joining her to Adam in marriage is a type of something to come. Typology is the study of those places uh, in Revelation and redemptive history where God both speaks and acts in such a way as to give us pictures of what is to come. It's a rich field of Bible interpretation. And Paul is leading us in this case in seeing Adam and Eve as a type of Christ And the church got an ulterior motive when he went about creating Eve. He was giving us a glimpse of the good news. The news of what he was going to do in human history between Christ and his people. So that's the ulterior motive in the making of marriage. Now let's spend the rest of our time looking at gospel features of the first marriage. We're armed with this insight from Paul. More is going on in Genesis 2 than might first meet the eye. Can we now go back to Genesis and recognize in the creation of Eve and the marrying of Adam and Eve features of that that point us to the gospel? Well, 2,000 years of Christian exegesis gives the answer, yes, we can. I've been reading the last few days from the church fathers on Genesis 2, and they, oh, they take Paul very seriously when he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. They take that, you might say, to the bank. And they read Genesis 2 in light of Paul's insight, the same way they read Genesis 1 and we did in light of John's insight the coming of Christ the revealing of the gospel to our fathers and to this day reveals light on Genesis chapter 2 so what can we be seeing what can be seen of the gospel in the making of this first marriage i'm going to put it in terms of four questions and their answers number 1 Why did God take such extraordinary steps to fashion Eve as a companion for Adam? Now, in a set of uh, words in the scripture that describe the creation of the universe, there's a certain sense in which everything is extraordinary, to be sure, but you'll recall, don't you? We asked this question early on, why all the drama in the creating of Eve? Why all the real estate in terms of inspired scripture devoted to her creation? We saw that God was teaching in all of that, and we saw rightly that he was teaching us about the roles of men and women in marriage. He is the head, she is the helper. Paul makes those points as well, but if Adam... Is a picture of Christ and Eve is a picture of the church, then there's something more than that, even. Why did God take such extraordinary steps to fashion Eve as a companion for Adam? Because it was his plan throughout the coming ages of the world to fashion the church as a companion. For his eternally begotten Son. This painstaking making of the woman in the way that he makes her is a picture of what God is setting out throughout all of human history to do, which is to make, to build a church. Now, the church fathers were quite fascinated by the word made that you have in your English Bibles in chapter 2, verse tw- 22. That would easily get biased in the English. It, Reads rather straightforwardly. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. But the Hebrew word is literally built. And it's a word taken from the world of architecture. God is being depicted here in the original as a master builder when he crafts Eve. And it's not lost on our fathers that this is in fact what Jesus says about his mission. As he comes, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Matthew chapter 16 and earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul had spoken of this. He, that is Christ, gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So listen to St. Jerome. He's speaking in the 4th century about Genesis 2.22. Here, Scripture said, built. The Latin he used was the word for edifice. The concept of building intends to denote the construction of a great house. Consequently, Adam's rib, fashioned into a woman, signifies by apostolic authority talking about Paul, Christ in the church, and that is why scripture said he built a woman from the rib. We've heard about the first Adam, let us come now to the second Adam and see how the church is built from his side. Brothers and sisters. In the creation of Eve, we're actually seeing God revealing his divine purpose in creating everything. He creates Eve as a companion for Adam in order that they might have relationship. That's the ultimate reason he creates the world and man in his image in it. It's to have relationship with him. Specifically, to have relationship with him through his son. Marriage that he will arrange. You know, not only from Ephesians 5, but from the finale of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, this is how it all ends. It all ends with a great wedding feast when we will be presented to Christ, spotless and without wrinkle, as a bride. So that's your first feature of the making of this marriage, Genesis 2. It points to the gospel. God's fashioning a bride for Adam. It's his foreshadowing. His whole plan for human history. To make a bride for his son. Feature number two in the form of a question. Why was it that God created Eve in such a way that she shared Adam's flesh and bone. We ponder this, our first sweep through the text. Eve isn't made from the ground like Adam was. She's made from a piece of Adam himself. We saw, rightly so, this has implications for how he would view her, how we, as husbands, would view our wives. We quoted Matthew Henry, his adorable And memorable, quote, out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected. Near his heart to be beloved. He was teaching about our marriages in that. But if Adam is a picture of Christ and Eve is a picture of the church, there's something more than that here. And it is this. In order for there to be a divine human wedding, the end of all time, God will have to take flesh and blood. He'll have to share in our own flesh, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. You could say that there is a hint already of the incarnation. and It's even more than that. Wait, there's more. What would flow out of this? Adam caring for his wife Eve as one who was quite literally an extension of his own body. This too would preach of Christ's love for us. Paul is actually quite interested in that in the passage that we looked at in Ephesians 5. He says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. So I greeted you this morning. Those who are bone of Christ's bone, flesh of Christ's flesh. Listen to St. Ambrose. The union of Adam and Eve is a great mystery in Christ and in the church. It is certain that as Eve was bone of the bones of her husband and flesh of his flesh, we also are members of Christ's body, bones of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Think about it this way. Your Savior Speaks of you, thinks of you, relates to you. The way Adam, when he first saw Eve, this at last. It's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. How much does Jesus love you, people of God? Like you're his own body. Like you're a piece of him. That's the mystery behind the mystery of marriage. You bear that in mind as you are feasting tonight on Christ's love at the table. You remember this, please. As Adam gave to Eve from his own flesh that she might live, Christ gives to us of his own flesh that we might live. Third gospel feature of this first marriage. Put in a question again. Why was it the man who's spoken of as leaving father and mother to take a wife. Now, Actually, we did talk about this because I gave you a sneak peek at this sermon when we were last in the text. I said to you, Moses is speaking here of masculine initiative in the making of a marriage, but that's grounded in something bigger than any of us mere men. It's the initiative of Christ taking a wife. Now, I want you to think with me about Our Lord Jesus errand as he came to the earth. You can hear it from John the Baptist. You can hear it from Jesus himself. What was his errand? John the Baptist, speaking of our Lord, says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's Voice. Who is John saying Jesus is? He's the bridegroom. This is how Jesus spoke of himself. Mark 2, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people in and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. Jesus said to them, and the wedding guests fast." while the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What is Jesus saying? Well, John and Jesus are saying even more than that he is the bridegroom, they're saying that he's the man Who's left, as it were, father and mother in order to fetch a wife. To hold fast to her. To become one flesh with her. Sometimes, in fact, the eternal fellowship of the Trinity is compared to a family. And family is an image of that, we could say, as well. To be clear, the bonds of the Trinity were never severed in any way. There is truly a sense which God the Son left that heavenly home to come to earth. We sing it. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. What I'm saying to you is, just as Genesis 2 speaks, the initiative is his. He left heaven. He came to earth. And all to fetch a wife. That's the deepest reason for these inspired words of Moses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Because when we men do this, we're acting out the deeper mystery of what Christ has done. In coming for us. So I'm seeing in this feature of the gospel found in the making of the first marriage, a picture of sovereign grace. That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing Calvinism, as a matter of fact. I'm seeing the union of Christ and his church, the great end of all history being God's idea, God's initiative, and God's glorious achievement from beginning to end. That's what the doctrines of grace are celebrations of. We treasure them in our tradition. Fourth gospel feature and the last of this first marriage made. Put again in the question. Why did God in particular bring forth Eve from a wound made in the side of Adam Answer, because the forming of the church of Christ would only be possible through the wounding of the Son of God. I could put the question in simpler terms. Brothers and sisters, as we think of this scene that's painted for us in Genesis 2, Why the blood? Why the bone? Why the wound? Have you ever thought about that? If Adam is a picture of Christ, Eve is a picture of the church, there's something profound here. That wound, even that sleep is pointing to something that would only become clear at the cross. St. Augustine, even in the beginning, when woman was made for a rib in the side of the sleeping man, that had no less a purpose than to symbolize prophetically the union of Christ and his church. Adam's sleep was a mystical foreshadowing. Christ's death. Augustine is regarded as the greatest of all church fathers. He's seeing significance not just in the wound, but in the sleep. Over a thousand years later, the king of commentators, Matthew Henry, follows St. Augustine and the other church fathers. Matthew Henry writes this. In this, as in many other things, Adam was a figure, of him who was to come. For out of the side of Christ the second Adam, his spouse, the church was formed when he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross. Adam's sleep, foreshadowing of our Lord's sleep of death, Adam's wound a foreshadowing of his body broken for us. Matthew Henry joins the church fathers in saying that when that soldier took his spear and ran it into the side of our Lord, it's as if God was accenting the reality that his son was the second Adam and from his wounded side would flow blood for the cleansing of the church's sins and water. Friends, I just ask you as we have studied God's way as creator for so much time now, doesn't he go about his work of creation with an eye for something other than mere efficiency? He does it with an eye to our instruction, our edification, with an eye to His glory reflected in our eyes. I ask you, why else would the Creator break something perfect in order to make something else? Why would the Wound of one be necessary to give life to the other. Why the blood and the bone and the flesh in that perfect paradise? Why this perfect man lying on the ground with a wound in his chest? Answer... To reassure those who live in the aftershocks of our Lord's brutal death as the second Adam. This was always his intention. To bring life to us by the wounding of our husband. God's embedding right here in the creation account a sign That points to the cross, and you've noticed by now, it's before there's any sin, even in the world. Listen to one of our writers in Table Talk Magazine. What a mystery of beauty is the Christian religion. Even before the fall of man. God was foreshadowing the pattern of our redemption In the wounding of Adam. Recorded in Genesis 2, we find a type of the redemptive provision God would make for our salvation. A picture historically prior to the very sin of Adam that necessitated our redemption. As recorded in Genesis 3. Truly the elect... Have been saved from the foundation of the world. Indeed. So let's add them up, these gospel features revealed in a nutshell in this first marriage. Number one, God's whole history or plan for history, rather, is focused on making a wife for his son. Number two, he will accomplish this by becoming one with our flesh and blood. Number three, this will be all of God's Sovereign initiative from first to last. And it will entail his willingness to be wounded for our transgressions in order to purchase and purify us as a bride. Folks, that's a lot of gospel. It's a lot of gospel. Looking back at the inspired words of Holy Scripture in Genesis 2, we're able to see. I simply say to every last one of you here it's a gospel not just to be marveling at this morning, it's a gospel to be believed. Do you believe the God of salvation is that wise and that good? He's had the one way of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, in mind from the very beginning of time. I want you to remember when we come to a passage, when we do get to Genesis chapter 3, passage has been called the Proto-Evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. And of course, it's that reference to when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. this is, in fact, the first proclamation of the gospel in explicit terms. I want you to remember, we've already had a picture of the gospel. It's come even before that. A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So said Moses, greatest of all prophets. This mystery is profound, and it refers to Christ. Christ. So said Paul, greatest of all the apostles. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we love to say of you that all things, past, present, and future are as today. You stand over time, outside of it all. You are working through all things, your sovereign, gracious purposes for your elect. You've given us a glimpse yet further into this. As we read your word, the light of all that you've done, said in Christ, we worship you. And we believe. We believe that most dreadful of all moments in history—the death of your son—is what you, you have foreordained from the foundations of the earth. We believe. We bless you. That you were willing to wound. Our husband, that we might have life, might have fellowship with him forever and ever. So give us the joy and the wonder of all this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.